0: I'm astronaut Jenny Sidie Gibbons, and you are listening to Sounds uh, from the Outer I Space am, name on Logistics Sounds Interesting.
1: Here at the Dunlap Institute and the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. This is Brian Gainsler, Gainsler, director of the sounds Dunlap Institute Outer for Space Astronomy and Astrophysics.
0: You're listening to Sounds of Space on Sounds Interesting. To me, it, it just sounded completely and totally otherworldly. <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to the second episode of Sounds Interesting. I'm your host Shiloh.
3: And I'm Peter.
2: And today we're going to talk about sounds from outer space.
3: You were just listening to a NASA clip off the top mixed with our theme. That's the sound of Saturn. Yes,
2: it came from outer space.
3: One of many we collected for this episode.
2: Yeah, um, these NASA clips were actually sort of the catalyst for the episode and what inspired us to sort of dig deeper into the topic.
3: We talked to some experts in the field, uh, Brian Gainsler and Rennie Holzik from the Dunlap Institute of Astronomy and Astrophysics, University of Toronto.
2: We also talked to um, Canadian astronaut uh, Jennifer Seide Gibbons.
3: And uh, Brian actually kind of wrote the book on Sounds from Outer Space, at least he has a chapter in his book about sounds from outer space Uh, and we decided we start with him
0: let's get into that conversation so the book is called extreme cosmos and it's all about the world records of the universe and the reason why i wrote the book is because my son who was quite young at the time would ask me questions like you know what's what's the faintest star what's the loudest thing in the universe what's the brightest thing in the universe and i'd say I don't know. And then he, he sort of said, well, what sort of astronomer are you? You don't, you don't know these things. And I've tried to explain to him that astronomy is not about these things. It's about like measuring things and understanding things and modelling things. And he just rolled his eyes and said, oh, it sounds boring. Um, and so I set out to write this book to answer the sorts of questions that he would... Ask. And when, when you're a young kid, it's always about the biggest and the smallest and the hottest and the fastest. So it turned out that nobody had ever actually sort of calculated what is the fastest star in the universe or what is the darkest place in the universe or where is the strongest gravity in the universe. So when I set out to write this book, I thought I could just Google this and just sort of explain what other people had done. It turned out no one had ever made these calculations. So, you know, when I started the question, what has been the loudest sound in the universe? What's the deepest note that's ever been played in the universe? I had a lot of fun doing it because I had to go way outside my areas of expertise and look, read about objects that I don't normally study. And then I had to like figure out how you convert the sorts of units that uh, astronomers use, which are things like uh, you know Kelvins per cubic meter, and convert that to decibels, which is a number that people might be more familiar with. So it was really interesting for me to have to sort of go back to basics and do all these really detailed and complicated calculations that Normally, you would never bother doing because the result isn't interesting. No astronomer cares how many decibels a supernova is, mm-hmm. and to actually put numbers on these things, and then to work out where, how they compare to uh, come up with ways of explaining to people what these numbers mean. So I can tell you that the uh, the uh, um, you know the, the frequency of a particular note in the universe is you know ten to the minus nine you know hertz or something, but I can also tell you that you have to add four hundred notes to the left end of of a piano in order to be able to play it. And uh, so it was a lot of fun being able to work out how to convey these very extreme concepts in in terms that people might be able to understand.
3: Right, And it's interesting that you always express that as musical notes because there is a mathematical equivalence in pitch and variations and and, and frequency.
0: I don't think people appreciate just how mathematical music is and how how elegant and simple the rules are so there are other aspects of the universe where you really have to hide the mathematics from people Uh, but this is one where you don't i mean if i say something is 46 octaves below middle c then even though no one can understand what that sound sounds like everyone sort of understands what i'm talking about and that's all just based on the mathematics we get from analyzing the data and then through music theory converting that to sounds and notes So whenever you see sound effects in a movie involving space, you're supposed to say, oh, you know, they don't know what they're doing. There's no sound in space. They got that wrong. But through space, no one can hear you scream. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Sound is uh, a pressure variation. So when you hear a noise, what you're act- what's actually happening is the air pressure... Outside your ears is going up and down and up and down hundreds of times a second, and that vibration of the air pressure—a little bit higher in pressure, a little bit lower in pressure—your the the hairs in your ears and then your nerves in your brain in converts that to sound. So, if you say what is sound, sound is any place where the air pressure is vibrating up and down in a cyclic way. So, if there's, you're going to talk about sound somewhere else besides the earth, you need some sort of gas, and you need some sort of disturbance that makes the pressure wobble up and down. So it turns out that space is not a very good name for space because it's not empty, it's actually, I think they should call it stuff, because it has, there is no perfect vacuum anywhere in the universe. There is gas everywhere in the universe. The densities are billions of times lower than the gas in this room. Even the most perfect vacuum that humans have been able to make on Earth uh, is still not as rarefied as the typical gas out there in space. So by human standards, yeah, it's a vacuum. But there is gas there. It is measurable, even from us here on Earth. And when there are disturbances in the universe, explosions or stars flying through through the sky, uh, those set up vibrations in the same way that an explosion on Earth sets up a vibration, in the same way that a plane screaming overhead sets up vibrations, these same motions in space set up pressure variations. And those propagate outwards as sound waves. These are not sounds that you could ever hear. Because the density of gas in space is very, very low, that means that these pressure variations are very slow and the notes that you would hear are much below what the lowest note on a piano. Is. So these are not notes that any human or any other animal could hear, but if you define sound as a vibration of pressure up and down, then these are absolutely sounds in the same way that uh, all, all the sounds around us uh, manifest themselves.
3: I just want to clarify something, Brian, because I understand what you're saying from a scientific point of view, but for our listeners, for instance, we brought along clips of planetary sounds as well as more distant objects. Um, this sound can be interpreted mathematically and accurately represented so we can hear it, right? For, with, with the aid of conversion techniques and such.
0: So most of the clips that people typically share and saying, oh, this is the sound of, of something are not real sound. They're, they are a vibration but they're not a vibration of pressure, which means they're not actually sound. So it's like an artist's impression of how this might be if you interpret it as a sound. Um, Other ones are real sounds, but we've had to make them much louder or much higher pitched, essentially had to speed them up and so you could hear it. So we can play notes of sounds in space but you don't want to play um, a clip that goes for a thousand years so you can obviously greatly speed it up, raise it by 30 or 50 octaves and make it louder and so you can actually hear what it sounds like. But some of the sounds that you hear on these clips are real sounds that have been adjusted for human hearing and others are not sounds at all, they're just vibrations but not of air
2: pressure. To make
0: another analogy you
3: used in your book uh, animal sounds here on earth like whale song they're actual sounds and what we're hearing interpreted so they're brought up to an audible level, that's an actual representation of what the whale's
0: sounding like, right? Absolutely. So when you hear a recording of a, a bat screeching or a whale singing, you're taking a real sound and you're simply uh Moving it up a few octaves or moving it down a few octaves so that it's within the range of human hearing. So I think that's fine because every every B flat, you know, all the different B flats on a piano uh, all basically sound the same. They're just an octave apart, and that's all you're doing. You're just singing a different pitch. Whenever I'm at karaoke and I want to do some powerful like Ariana Grande number. I have to lower it a few octaves because I don't have her vocal range, but uh, everyone agrees it's the same song, even though I'm singing it a couple of octaves lower. And so it's exactly the same with Whale Song. It's a real sound, and we're just shifting in, uh, shifting in pitch so that we can hear it. Thank
3: you. Thank you. Well, I'll just continue that because we brought along some clips we'd like to play for you okay. and get your reaction. And maybe you could guide the listener a little bit. I'll try. All right. Okay. Uh, to what we're hearing.
2: Um, Let's start with the Black Widow Black Widow Widow Pulsar is a rotating neutron star that orbits a brown dwarf companion and eventually consumes it.
3: Pulsars are easy to spot in space because they emit a very strong light from either pole of the star and are thus known as lighthouse stars.
0: So this is a fascinating object. The Black Widow is one of my favorite objects for a number of reasons. Uh, and you can convert the behavior of the Black Widow into a sound like we've done there. But if you actually flew a spaceship over to the Black Widow and were measuring the air pressure, at least as far as we can measure, based on what we can see here, you wouldn't be seeing a vibration in sound the way you would be from measuring the air pressure in this room right now from
2: from voice. We also talked to Renee. She's a cosmologist, which means she studies the origin and the evolution of the universe. And we talked to her a little bit about the history of sound in the universe.
1: My name is Renee Hlozik. I'm an assistant professor here at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics and the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics. And I'm a cosmologist that studies light and sound in the universe.
2: <laughs> we're here. We're here for the sound. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the um, the early stages of the universe?
1: Sure. Uh, so, one of the things that um, happens in the early universe, if we take our minds back there, um, so the universe is really hot, um, and it's so hot, in fact, that it's a plasma, which means that you know the electrons and protons are free, um, and uh, what happens is that the balance of like gravity pulling everything together and the radiation pressure pushing everything apart sets up these sound waves in the early universe. Uh, and so these persist and they're, they're, everything is moving around. We, we talk about a, a, a plasma soup, a cosmic soup, and everything is moving around. Um, but as the universe ages, I guess, like all of us, it gets cooler. Um, and so the universe cools down and, and eventually it gets cold enough that the electrons and the protons can combine to form neutral atoms. And when they do that, the motion that you have in this early universe stops because there's nothing to kind of push and pull in the same way. Um, But the imprint of that movement around, which is really those sound waves that get set up in the early universe, that imprint is actually left in where galaxies end up being. So we see the imprints of these sound waves in the visual... Uh, display of galaxies in the sky. So it's a really strange kind of roundabout way. So I actually see the sound waves um, in, in a sense in our, in our data. Okay.
3: Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because you just, I mean, that was a fascinating explanation. I'm thinking of it. You see the sound waves. What are we talking about? We just had an explanation about, you know, uh, different types of sound. Uh, in this type, in this case, we're talking about sound waves as they move through the gas.
1: So the yeah, so the acoustic oscillations that are happening in this plasma are are the, the are related to the motion of the plasma at the time. But the what happens is because things are interacting, by gravity, uh, gravity kind of sticks the objects or the, the plasma particles, and they eventually sticks the dark matter actually um, in the places that that those acoustic oscillations were. And so with time, even though the, um, the sound waves are no longer happening, these imprints are left in where the galaxies are. Um, so that's this kind of interesting mix.
2: Can I think of them as almost like fossils of the sound waves that you're looking at now?
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great um, kind of visual image um, because it's exactly that. We see the fossils, I like that, the barren Acoustic Oscillation fossils of this really early time. And it's one of the coolest things, I think one of the coolest things about cosmology because you're linking the earliest phases of the universe, so before, or 380,000 years after the Big Bang, and you're seeing the galaxies you know that, that exist now and that existed uh, about a million years ago. So you're just seeing everything together. Mm-hmm. I like the fossil idea. It's mm-hmm. cool. And, and what do those
2: fossils, I'm just going to go mm-hmm. with that, Yeah. Um, tell you about what what the sounds were
1: like? So what it tells you actually is um, what the the stuff in the universe is made of. So for example, you can imagine if there were... So I'm going to talk about baryons, and baryons is just the name for these you know, um, electrons and protons. We like to give everything new names. Um, so the baryons, if you have fewer baryons, you'd have less um, of the kind of pushing out that you would get. And if you had more... Dark matter, you'd have more of the pull because there'd be more gravity. And so the balance, you can think of it almost like a spring, the way a spring would move. If you change the weight on one of the edge ends, you would change the extent to which the spring can expand and contract. And so by looking at the, the pattern of these acoustic oscillations fossils on the sky, we actually learn about what the fluid was like early, what this, what the waves were in the early universe, Were there, was there more dark matter, was there less dark matter, um, and how they evolved um, as they propagated through.
3: What we're about to play is a recent hot topic in the scientific community, uh, because we only recently developed the technology to capture these. This is the sound of two black holes colliding, they call this the chirp. And we played it for Red A to get her reaction.
1: That recording, actually, when I when I first when the announcement was first made three years ago about the discovery of um of the you know black, uh, gravitational waves from the colliding black holes, I was actually in the moving van uh, get, picking up my stuff from Pearson, and uh, and I started crying because it's so it represents such an incredible achievement. So again, that's not actually a sound wave. But it's a sort of sonification of the fact that the atoms in space, uh, space-time are moving just a tiny bit. So the little measurement rod that measures that that is is just getting a tiny bit longer because of these space-time ripples that are coming because two black holes are colliding. So they're colliding and they're they're so massive that they're dragging space around with them. And as they do that, they send this like shockwave to us. This little not a shockwave per se but it's a little ripple in spacetime to us and then our detectors super far away can just detect the tiniest little exp- um, stretching of the material uh, and it's it's vanishingly small and that's why I have these really sensitive detectors and then they convert that into sort of a chirp and so it's it's the equivalent of those but from the beginning of the universe that we are searching for, my telescope is searching for using light, but the same kind of analogy, because we expect to see these very strange ripples.
3: So our final guest was astronaut Jennifer Sidie Gibbons. I'm an
0: astronaut with the Canadian Space Agency. Before I was an astronaut, I was working as a combustion scientist and professor in an engineering department, and now I spend my time training to eventually fly in space down in Houston, Texas, at the Johnson Space
3: Center. And we got to play a clip of her favorite uh, satellite. It's a satellite of Jupiter called Europa, a place she's very much interested in. And we got a reaction when we played a clip of the sounds of Europa. And I did you get a chance to hear the recording I, I shared with Audrey? I did, yeah. I got a chance
0: to hear it. So It's pretty, uh, it's pretty unique. I mean, to me, it, it just sounded completely and totally otherworldly. The idea of being able to to hear these waves oscillating through space, that's a, a really cool subject in itself. But as an explorer, it really drives home just how uh, unique this place is. And it's really in our celestial backyard. I mean, it's in our own solar system. So for me, it definitely raised more questions than it answered. <laughs> but it's pretty interesting stuff
2: good episode. Um, I learned a lot this week. Lots of interesting stuff and
3: I love sounds from outer space. Yeah, it's
2: wild. I really like the analogies that Brian made with them. We'd have to use like a a piano that was like thousands of times bigger than any one that we have right now in order to play a note that we would hear in outer space.
3: Yeah, and it's really fascinating, too, that they are more interested in seeing sound than actually hearing sound. Mm, Yeah, totally. Yeah. So there's one thing that didn't come up, though, Shiloh, and that's FRBs. Okay. Now, FRBs are extremely fast radio bursts. They're recently in the news because they're coming fast and furious now. And uh, scientists don't really agree what they are. They have lots of theories. And so
2: these are noises that um, scientists are picking up?
3: Yeah, they're signals from deep space we're not quite sure about what they are and there's no consensus in the scientific community about their origin
2: All right uh, maybe we need to look a little bit into those
3: I was hoping you say that <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know uh, all right let's uh, we'll explore those a little bit next week and turn this sounds from outer space into a two-parter
3: next time on sounds from outer space. <laughs> Seems If they are out there, we'll hear them before we see them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say that's <laughs> certainly something
3: that's like above, certainly above my pay grade. New <laughs> York University, if you know the
1: extension number you are calling, please... So has basically two parts to it. One is the idea that we should simply be listening or rather searching for signals in space. So whether those are um, hypothetical transmissions from
2: an alien civilization... Which so we've got a
3: couple people to thank this week Uh, obviously the dunlap institute and uh, brian and renee for their gracious time and explanations Mm -hmm. uh
2: nasa for providing us with those great outer space sound
3: clips. and we also have to thank uh, jennifer sidey gibbons uh, the astronaut we heard from who uh, hopefully herself will soon be heading to outer space. Mm
2: -hmm. And as always, Playdate for providing us with the theme music.
3: Yes, Playdate.
2: There's something in there useful. It's all laid out here somewhere.